Oh, good morning, and what a blessing on this first day of unleavened bread. Baruch Hashem, Yahweh. Blessings. So again, we're looking at the potency and the primacy of the Lamb. And like we left off yesterday, we were talking about history and how the victors, they are the ones that write history. But if we go back to the first century, we were looking how there are these five different belief systems. But pro-Orthodoxy, which is where the Trinity formula comes from, were, of course, the victors, and the victors write the history. But we looked at these other sects that were around in the first century, and we were looking at the responses that we find in the scriptures to these various sects. Of course, pro-Orthodoxy won out, but then we had the adoptionists that were saying that Yahushua was just a mere man and that he was adopted by the Father, some say at the resurrection, some say that he was adopted at the um, baptism, at the mikvah with Yochanan, John the Immerser. So there was another set called the Adoptionists. And you see some of those arguments and counter-arguments in the New Testament. Then there was another sect we looked at yesterday called the Separationists, where there was this separation between the Son and the Father, and that Yahushua was separated completely when he was on the tree. And there was a whole other sect called the Separationists. Then we got into this fourth sect, where there were two groups within this fourth sect, which were, of course, the Docetics, which comes from the Greek word doceticism, and it means to seem or to appear. Now, there was the reformists, doceticists, the um, reformist docetics, excuse me, where they said that Yahushua wasn't in flesh at all, but he was really just appeared to be in flesh. And the counter to that, of course, is that if you deny that Yahushua came in the flesh, then you are the spirit of anti-Messiah. And then the counter to that, again, is, of course, the testimony of put your finger in my side. I'm not a phantom. Because these kinds of rumors were going around in the first century, and there needed to be scriptural counter to these kinds of claims. But sect B, which was the orthodox docetics, which I would fall under, where Yahushua appeared in human form, was crucified and resurrected. He did come in flesh, but his flesh was, of course, from heavenly origins, John chapter 6, not from the dust. And, of course, this was something that, again, was a very popular belief system in the first century, but what happened? Of course, pro-Orthodoxy won out and writes the history. And finally, there was another sect called those of the Patri Passionist, where Yahushua was Elohim the Father who came down in human flesh. And a Patri Passionist means one who believed the Father suffered which we know that isn't so. It was the Son that suffered. But even today, you find people that get all confused on the distinction of powers. 
And now we're going to go further down the rabbit trail of finding out about the potency and the primacy of the lamb because that is what Passover is all about, the potency and primacy of the lamb. So at the Council of Nicaea, we're all very familiar with this. This happened in 325 of the Common Era. We find that Constantine at that point made his perversion the universal church doctrine. His perversion of the truth became the universal church doctrine, and this was pro-orthodoxy that now had the full thrust of an army, the full thrust of a religion behind it. And now if you came up against this one formula, pro-orthodoxy, what would happen to you? You would be killed. There was a whole war machine behind this religious system. So how was the Trinity doctrine finally cemented? How was it finally cemented in and formed that it could grow into what we see now in the 21st century? Through careful study of the scriptures? Certainly not. No, no, not at all. It happened through centuries centuries of persecution, bloodshed, and by the papal church murdering those who opposed them. That's simple. That was the simple creedal formula. Simply put, the Trinitarian view was won by taking out the opposition. That was it. And it became pro-orthodoxy. If you questioned that, then you were taken out. And a thousand years ago, hundreds of years ago even, it was very simple to take people out who opposed those kinds of views because you had the full weight of an army, a government, a church behind you rooting out any that would question pro-orthodoxy, which was the Trinitarian formula. Not through reading one's Bibles, but through persecution and seeking out those that would hold other belief systems was this doctrine established. So today we see still many of these sects of the five that I mentioned in our day and age. I've noticed over the past few years, don't know if you have, but the Jehovah Witnesses have become a lot more public in their evangelism. I mean, they're actually on the side streets now with these little wheelie dollies with all of their literature in it. And um, they've really infiltrated the Hispanic community in a big, big, big way. And this is something that concerns me because, again, this formula that they're propagating is a perversion of scriptural truth. And it's very easy to refute the Jehovah Witnesses very simply. Um, I had a Jehovah Witness many years ago that came to my gate and um, wanted to evangelize me, so I just decided just to share with him. You can pretty much deal with them with under five scriptures. I'll give you them very clearly. Um, and it is Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, and Revelation 22, verse 13. And you just ask the simple question, well, who is the first and who is the last? And they go, well, Jesus is the first and Jesus is the last. You're like, great, Yahushua is the first and the last. 
who died and who came to life. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. And we're all agreeable with that in the kingdom of the cults, right? But then we go and we have to take them then. This is the part they don't like. Well, let me show you something in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. And then you take into the scripture where it says that Yahweh changes not, that Yahusha changes not. This is a statement of identity. So who's the first and the last? Yahuwah. There's a plurality of powers, but there's not three different people running around. There is a plurality of powers, and the one single Echad power is the first and the last, manifest in his son, and Yahuwah changes not. So you've got a problem now if you try to separate Yahushua from the Father as a separationist, which is what the Jehovah Witnesses is. Okay? It's nothing new under the sun, but it's easily refuted with just a few scriptures. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, a statement of identity. He is the image of the invisible Elohim, the firstborn of all creation, for by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth. This is a statement of identity, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things are knit together. All things. The very fabric of our whole reality is knit together, held together through him. So then the Apostle Paul goes on to state about Yahushua's identity. It's actually in perfect harmony with all the texts that proceeded before it. Look at Psalm 20, verse 6. Now I know that Yahuwah saves his Moshiach. He will answer him from his holy heaven the saving might of his right hand is established before. Where's his saving might? It's his right hand. This is a duality of powers, not persons. And then look at Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Yahuwah exalted Yahushua at his right hand as sovereign and savior. So you see the consistency of the Bible thread from the Torah to the prophets into the New Testament. And many of these texts deal with these cults that have, they're nothing new under the sun. So Yahuwah is the first, and Yahuwah is the last. And Yahushua is the first, and Yahushua is the last. So Yahuwah is the master creator. By Yahushua, all things were created. Yahuwah's right hand then is salvific. It's Yahuwah's right hand that is specifically designated for what? Salvation. Yahuwah's right hand is the salvific power that goes out from him. 
If it's not amputated and walking around with its own set of legs, it is Yahuwah's right hand is specifically the power that is salvific. And you see that throughout the Torah. My outstretched arm. But it is Yahuwah's right hand that is salvific. Yahusha is the Savior or the right arm of Yahuwah. He is the one unified one, the Shema. The Shema. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Shema Israel, Yahuwah our Elohim, Yahuwah is Echad. A compound unity of power that goes forth out into the world. One unified one. It's very interesting. Um, we just sold our Torah scroll to um, the Jews. And... Um, <laughs> But if you actually look in the Torah scroll at the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, you'll notice with the spelling of the Shema actually in the scroll that it's spelled and the ayin, the last letter of the Hebrew word Shema, is so much larger than all the other text. And this is what's called one of the titles of Moses. Because the sages, when they were producing, or the scribes, excuse me, writing out the text, they wanted to make sure that the reader didn't confuse Shema for another Hebrew word that ends with a different end letter. So they made a tittle and they enlarged the Hebrew letter ayin. Because there's another Hebrew word that's spelt sheen, mem, not ayin, shema, but it's spelt sheen, mem, aleph, shema, which means perhaps. Hear, O Israel. Perhaps, O Israel. Yahweh your Elohim, Yah, perhaps? We don't want that kind of misunderstanding, Jehovah Witness, kingdom of the cult, perhaps. So we have to make sure that we enlarge the olive because we don't want you to perhaps Yahweh is your Elohim. We want to make sure that you understand that he is your Elohim, so we're going to enlarge the olive to make sure that you, excuse me, we're going to enlarge the ayin, Shin Mem Ain Shema, hear, O Israel, not Shin Mem Aleph, perhaps, O Israel. It's a big difference. Because if you get this wrong, then perhaps Yahweh is your Elohim. Perhaps you're making a God in your own culture's in image and mistakenly believing that it's Yahweh and therefore you're deceived. That's exactly what's happened. So let's talk a little bit. Somebody yesterday brought up the incarnation, the incarnation. And now we're getting into some Catholico territory here. No offense here, brother, from Alaska. <laughs> but he has a history and could actually help us with much information. 30 years in the Catholic Church. What a testimony. 30 years in the Catholic Church, and in his Catholic Church, they specifically decided to do a Bible study, which you said is 
quite unheard of in a Catholic church. And the topic of their Bible study in their cathedral was Melchizedek. And lo and behold, here is brother now here at Torah to the Tribes. What a powerful testimony. Traveled all the way down from Fairbanks, Alaska. Praise Yahuwah. Praise Yahweh. But look, the doctrine of the incarnation was actually established in Chaldeon in 451 of the Common Era. From the Latin word, and you can hear it, incarnation, in, the Latin word in means one, and carnis, flesh, one flesh. Incarnation comes from the Latin incarnis, one flesh. Now, we know this is a big issue in the Hebrew roots, a messianic movement, how people get deceived, is that people will say, well, see, you're totally deceived in your New Testament theology. You've got to get rid of the New Testament. You've got to get rid of the writings of Paul because Yahweh hates human sacrifice. And this is their straw man now. They prop up the straw man. Yahushua is fully human being, therefore, all of a sudden, your New Testament is teaching human sacrifice, which is an abomination. Let me show you the scripture, 2 Kings 23, verse 10. Yahuwah despises human sacrifice. So do you see the mixture here of truth and untruth, the propping up of the straw man? Very easy to blow over the straw man, and people are like, oh my goodness, you're so right. No, you're not. You're so wrong, because you're not fully developing who Yahushua is. You're not, dis what is it, what did we read last night in 1 Corinthians 11? That if you cannot fully discern the master's body, you're in a heap of trouble. If you think he's 100% God and 100% man, firstly, your math is, is very, very, very in need of help. And secondly, you're not rightly discerning the master's body. John chapter 6 gives us the ingredients, the recipe of the master's body. It's very clear his origin is, of course, his flesh from the heavens, which then blows over this straw man very easily, and we pop up the truth. And another thing is, and I've taught on this before, I'm not going to go into it today. No, Yahweh didn't ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Okay, that's something that we have learned from Judaism because what, now all of a sudden Yahweh is wanting human sacrifice and then he decides to change his mind at the last minute? No, this is something that I've taught on before and it's talking about how Abraham was coming out of Mesopotamia and he, was, he had been used to all of this child sacrifice, this animal sacrifice and Yahweh was trying to lead him out of his father's house and it was like, Abraham, really? sacrifice your only son Isaac. He was trying to finally get him to get rid of all of the Mesopotamian culture. Yet it's so mistranslated. 
And there are three interpretations, at least three. We understand actually four when you're going through the scriptures. You've got the Peshat, the plain sense of the text. You've got the Remez, the Hint. You've got the Drash, and then you've got the Sod. So, yes, you can interpret the text many different ways. I've taught the passage on the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, in the three, uh, two traditional modes. One is Judaism's. It's a human sacrifice that then w the hand was held back. Very traditional. Then there's the messianic interpretation, which is super great, and you see Yahusha all throughout the text, and it's a very messianic interpretation. Of course, Judaism wouldn't interpret it that way, but Christianity would do, the messianic would, would do as well. There's nothing wrong with that. There's many shadows in there, but then the historical and the real, to me, understanding plain sense of the text is that Yahweh is dealing with Abraham and his pagan child sacrifice culture, and he's trying to finally say, Abraham, come out of her, my people, so you can come over into the land, and now you can begin to be the beginning of generations. But he had to get that child sacrifice Mesopotamian culture out of him, and that is a teaching that I've done many years ago. It might be time to do that again. But anyway, this human sacrifice business of how people say, well, Yahushua was a human sacrifice, and then they prop that straw man up, knock him over, and people's faith is decimated. Exodus chapter 24, verse 10, gives us again the identity and the formulation of our great king, the primacy and the potency of the lamb. Foundational text. Where do we find this text? This is in the heart of the book of the covenant. This is Malkit primacy, Exodus 24.10. So the book of the covenant has been delivered to Israel. They've accepted the covenant, and now we're going to have a covenant-confirming meal. This is Yahuwah's perfect will. And they saw the Elohim of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And as it were, the etzim, the bone of heaven in its clearness. So at this book of the covenant confirming meal, we find the etzim, a bone, the body, or figuratively the substance of heaven. Isn't that what all this is about? What is the substance of Yahushua? All of these arguments that we're dealing with of the first century, whether it's pro-orthodoxy, whether it's the separationists, whether it's the adoptionists, whether it's the two sects of the docetics, it's all dealing with what? The substance of heaven. You don't need to listen to my ideas because then we've just got another pope. Heaven forbid. Let's listen to the primary source text of what the substance of heaven is, and then we'll thread it through the prophets, the writings, and the New Testament. And then when the kingdom of the cults come knocking on your door, you are easily armed. And when people prop up straw men to blow them over, you'll be like, get rid of the straw man. Now let me prop the truth up, and the truth will stand and stand alone because it is built on the solid bedrock of what? Covenant. Exodus 24, verse 10. You cannot get more solid bedrock than what? 
Concrete? No. Do you know what the most solid bedrock is? A sapphire stone. A sapphire stone, which is what the kingdom of Yahweh, the very substance, the body of the heaven in its clearness, because it becomes very clear when you understand this formulation of truth. So at the book of the covenant confirming meal, the kingdom of priests sat down and they ate and drank with the body of Yahweh, the bone of heaven. Now at the marriage supper of the Lamb, what will we do? We'll sit down as a kingdom of priests again and eat and drink of the Master's body, the bone of heaven, in John chapter 6. So this is what's called, I love those big highbrow um, words that they used to throw out at me when I was an elder and a, a college pastor at Calvary Chapel, you know, to try and intimidate me when I would question doctrine. They'd always come up with these big words and I'd be like, oh my goodness, what does that mean? I'd have to go back and I'd like, and it'd be like, well, it's just like a highbrow religious word for something very simple. Here's a good one. Anthropomorphic Yahuwah. Well, what? Oh my goodness, now I'm intimidated. No, it just means attributing, attributing human characteristics to something that is non-human such as deity. We see it throughout the scriptures, but it's nothing to be intimidated about. It's anthropomorphic Yahuwah. With eyes, with hands, with feet, a body. Of course, Judaism does not want you to talk about anthropomorphic Yahuwah, of course, because anthropic or anthropomorphic Yahuwah is a reality of the Bible, which is the formulation creed for the reality of Yahusha coming and walking amongst men. It's not something that got made up. It was something all the way back at the beginning. Anthropomorphic Yahuwah is the very character of Yahuwah throughout the pages of Scripture. He sees, he, ear, he, he, he sees, he hears, he eats, he walks, he speaks. Anthropomorphic Yahuwah. It's perfect. Exodus chapter 24 verse 11. Yahusha is the very etzim, the very bone of heaven. Spell ayin, zadi, mem, sofit. This is the Malkitzedic confirmation meal. So the question that I often ask people is, well, did Yahusha inherit the kingdom of Yahuwah? Did he? Well, thank you. Yes. It's not, a, it's not a trick question. You're like, is oh, yes, yes, yes. So you guys have walked with me long enough, and you're like, ah, 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 he's setting me up. He's setting me up. Did? I'm not answering anything. It's like when you're in school, right? You're like, oh, no, I don't want to be the one that's called out, right? <laughs> Did Yahusha inherit the kingdom of Elohim? Yes, for sure and for certainty. But hang on a minute. But flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of Elohim. Oh. So what does that formula spell to us? So did Yahushua have flesh? John chapter 4 verse 2. First John chapter 4 verse 2. By this shall you know the spirit of Yahuwah. Every spirit that confesses that Yahushua the Messiah has come in the flesh is from Yahuwah. 
And every spirit that does not confess that Yahushua the Messiah has come in the flesh is not from Yahuwah. And this is the spirit of anti-Messiah which you have heard is coming and is already now on the corner streets giving out there. What is that paraphernalia? The watchtower, right? Ah, but his flesh wasn't from the dust of the earth. The scripture defines a human being, like I said yesterday, as being from the dust of the earth. It doesn't matter how the world defines it or biology defines it. We're going to define everything by the word of Yahweh and a human being's flesh comes from the dust of the earth. Yahushua's flesh did not come from the dust of the earth. Therefore, you have to re-examine your creed by the Bible. That's simply it. As hard as that can be for you, and as hard as tradition is, if you're a true scripturalist, you have to stop, drop, and pray at this point. Because the Bible is very clear that Yahushua's flesh did not come from the dust of the earth. John chapter 6, okay? So again, like yesterday, we're dealing with Christology here. This is the reality. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, And Yahuwah Elohim formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a chai nefesh, a living soul. This is not what happened to Yahushua. Can we be very clear on this? This is not what happened to our Savior. Not at all. John chapter 6, verse 48. I am the living bread, the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness, and they're dead. But this bread that comes down, here's the statement of identity, that comes down from the heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, the bread of life who came down from the heavens. And if any man eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And, and here's now the clarification point. And the bread that I will give, now he's going to identify it, is my spirit. Does it say that? No, it certainly doesn't. It's a real clear phrase. It's my flesh. It is my flesh. So therefore, between the first few verses of Genesis and John chapter 6, we have a juxtaposition of identity between human being and the bone of heaven. This is a creedal formula that has not been taught because you would have been killed publicly just 200 years ago for stating such a thing. This bread which I will give is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. And the Jews, therefore, of course, argued among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, if he was from the dust, then yes, that would have been cannibalism. And that's another straw man 
that is propped up by those that are just about to exit the messianic movement into the synagogue of Satan is so, oh, so you're saying then when Yahushua said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, he was teaching cannibalism. There's their straw man. And people are like, oh my goodness, you're so right. Oh my goodness, we've been deceived. Oh, he can't be the Messiah. Bad theology. You fell for the straw man. You fell for the straw man. No. Because his flesh is from heaven and his blood is from where? We'll get into that in a minute. From his, somebody said it, father. What are you actually partaking of? You're partaking of the priesthood meal, Exodus chapter 24. Which is what Yahushua did with his disciples, which is what Passover is a pre-shadow of, because we'll actually be eating of the bone of heaven in the kingdom. This is huge. This is huge. And it's not that difficult when we really start to... Un What's difficult is that we've all been brainwashed. And then somebody like me or somebody who like you that starts to talk and teach this then gets stones thrown at them by those that are so enamored by the synagogue of Satan, everything Hebraic and everything Judaism, that they just can't see the wood for the trees because their interpretation is through a rabbinical prism or prison, right? <laughs> Verse 52, the Jews therefore argued among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Yahushua said to them, Amen, ve amen, I say to you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Why? Because you have now entered into the Malkit-Zedek covenant-confirming meal. He proposed to you. You accepted his proposal, his blood ratification. Now you live and you come to the covenant-confirming meal. It's a package deal about the grand splendor of Yahushua. Now, when we go back to the Torah, and you can look at what's called the laws of kilyaim, the laws of mixing, right? You can't have wool and linen in one garment. That you can't sow your field with two diverse kinds of seeds, two diverse kinds of species. So this is clarification for us that Yahushua has no dual nature. He cannot be a component of human being and a component of deity because that's the laws of Kilyaim. It violates the laws of mixing. He can't be 97% deity, divine, and 3% human. He has to be one or the other. So either it's like the kingdom of the cults say that Yahushua is fully human and that he's not deity, Jehovah Witness, which is a lie from the pit of hell, because no man can save his brother. No man can redeem his brother. So if he is a human being, just like you and me, then forget it, we're all sunk, we're all dead in our sins. No man can redeem his brother. That's what it says in the Tanakh. 
But can the outstretched arm of Yahweh redeem mankind? Yes. Yes. So we find now that Yahusha does not violate the laws of Kilyayim, the laws of mixing. Yahusha is, of course, the Maya, the Maya, or the man from Elohim. His flesh, his spirit, and his blood are from Yahweh. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the Torah could not do, because it was powerless. People don't like to hear this, especially in the Hebrew roots and messianic movement. Torah is not powerless. Well, um, the Torah is totally powerless outside of Yahushua. Totally powerless. Let me be very clear on that. The Apostle Paul is very clear on it too. So you have to be balanced in your maturity in the Torah. For what the Torah could not do because it was powerless regarding man's weak flesh, Yahuwah sending his own son in the likeness, that's the key phrase, of that same sinful flesh and for sin, condemn man's sinful flesh by means of his own flesh. So here we go. There's a juxtaposition between man's flesh and Yahweh's manifest son's flesh. Do you see it? It's a distinction in terms that you can just read right through. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45 really nails it down for us. And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living being, but the last Adam was made a life-giving spirit. A distinction in terms. But the spiritual Adam was not first, but the natural Adam, and afterwards the spiritual one. The first man is of the earth, dust, earthly, fleshly. Now we have a distinction in terms. The second man is the master Yahuwah from the heavens. How much clearer can that be? As is the earthly, so also are those that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly one, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly one. This is talking about our future transfiguration. This is talking about our future transfiguration. Now this I say, Israelite brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of Yahuwah. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a deep, mysterious revelation. This is a deep, mysterious revelation that the Jews at the time of Yahushua could not comprehend and still cannot comprehend today. Therefore, they prop up a straw man 
and then blow it over before you. And the unsuspecting believer that is coming into the Hebrew roots, coming into the Torah, that is all zealous for the Torah, but also zealous for getting rid of all the paganism, all the traditions, then throws the baby out with the bathwater, the blessed, blessed son. Heaven forbid. So for clarification purposes, let me just give you a running commentary on the bone of heaven. Yahusha has no dual nature. Otherwise, he would violate the laws of Kilayim. There is no human sacrifice in the crucifixion of Yahusha. Clear as clear can be. Psalm 40 verse 6, Hebrews 10 verse 5, tells us that Yahuwah prepared a body. And Yahuwah resides in heaven. Thus, in heaven is where he prepared the body. He didn't prepare the body in the dust of the earth. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Where was that body prepared? Where was that flesh prepared? In the heaven. Rome, um, Philippians 2 verse 7, Yahushua was made in the likeness of men. In the likeness of men. Romans chapter 8 verse 3, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, Yahushua is the image of the invisible Elohim, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 2.9, he dwells fullness as deity in bodily form. There is no conflict here. This is absolutely powerful, powerful. Philippians 3.21 Our lowly body will be transformed into his glorious body. Our body will become a different substance. Your flesh will become a different substance. 2 Corinthians 5.2 We are to desire to be clothed in our habitation from on high, from heaven, which is a body made in heaven. Right? Matthew 16.12 From heaven. Well, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, said the Master, Right? From heaven. Well, flesh and blood did not the reveal this. Because flesh and blood alone cannot comprehend what is being taught today. It's only if you have the Holy Spirit and the truth of the Torah can you even comprehend what I'm saying. How long was Lazarus in the grave? Four days. Master! But he will stinketh, says the King Jimmy. Master, but he will stinketh. How long was Yahusha in the grave? Psalm 16, verse 10. 
for thou wilt not leave my soul in the grave, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see rigor mortis, decay, corruption. King David died and his body saw decay. Acts chapter 13, verse 36. Yahusha's body surely would have suffered decay and rigor mortis if it was a body from the dust in three days, would it not? Just one extra day and all of a sudden, thou stinketh, Lazarus? No. Within three days, if your body was from the dust of the earth, rigor mortis would have set in, decay would have set in, and that violates the very scripture that Yahweh has told us, that his son, his glorious holy one, would see no, that means none, not even a speck, not even a DNA coil would see any kind of breakdown. Nothing. That is impossible if his body came from the dust of the earth. Yahusha, like we see of the Father in the Torah, is anthropomorphic. There's that big word again, attributing human characteristics to something that is non-human, such as deity, better anthropomorphic Yahusha. Anthropomorphic Yahusha. Psalm 49, verse 5. No man can redeem his brother. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that Yahusha has to be dust. Nowhere. There is not a verse in Scripture that tells you that the Messiah, the redemption of Israel, the Savior, has to be dust. It simply doesn't exist. Nowhere does it say in the Bible that Yahusha has to be human to redeem mankind. That's classical... That is classical Greek thought straight from the Greek pantheon. That's where that thought came from. And it infiltrated the Roman Catholic Church. That's all. It's the Greek classical image where the gods descend into human form, become fully human to work out man's salvific role. It is classical Greek theology. But it's not biblical. But it's so familiar to our world which is built upon that construct. Democracy. Our political religious system is Greco-Roman in its very, very foundational core. Numbers 23 verse 19 is a Powerful, powerful scripture in the Hebrew. El ish chazah ben adam nacham. Elohim is not a human being that he should lie or a mortal that he should change his mind. So the issue is not composition, not the composition of Yahuwah, but the character of Yahuwah as true fulfiller of promises. Now, this scripture has been peddled in the Hebrew roots and messianic movement, Numbers 23, verse 9, to decimate people's faith. Because somebody that doesn't understand the composition of Yahusha, 
then somebody who's just about to exit the messianic movement into the synagogue of Satan says, oh yeah, by the way, um, Yahushua can't be the Messiah because um, Elohim is not a human being, that he should lie, or a mortal, that he should change his mind. But they're taking this passage out of context because this is not talking about the composition of Yahuwah, but the character of Yahuwah as the true fulfiller of promises. So it's a twisting. It's very easy to take something out of context. This isn't talking about the composition. This is talking about the character of Yahuwah. He's not going to go back on his promises like a human being. This is totally ripped out of context to try and decimate people's faith. Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 is very powerful. Then was Yahushua led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. But hang on a minute. First John or James 1.13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by Yahuwah, for Yahuwah cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. So this is a confusing text for many. And when you bring this up to traditional mainstream Christianity, you go, well, do you believe that, you know, Jesus is um, fully God? They'd be like, yes, for sure. And let me talk to you about the temptation in the wilderness. You're like, well, hang on a minute. If he's fully God, it says right here in, f in, in James chapter 1, verse 13, that God cannot be tempted. Oh, yes. So what's the problem here? A major problem. Don't attribute the works of Satan to Yahuwah. Is Yahushua Yahuwah in the flesh? Yes. But Yahushua was tested. Not tempted. He was tested. It's a mistranslation in Matthew chapter 4. Because he cannot be tempted. He was tested. He was tried. He was tested in all things. But... What's that? 34 years coming out. Yeah, it's crazy. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 23. Yahushua was not established in human flesh. He was established from everlasting before there was ever dust of the earth. Think about that. That is um, Proverbs 8, verse 23. Yahushua was established from everlasting. There wasn't even any dust of the earth when he was established. And we all know this now that it's being kind of, you're like, oh yeah, right? It's always been right there before us because we're biblically literate. Before there was any foundation of the earth, before there was any dust, he was. That would be impossible if he was from the dust. <laughs> So Yahushua was 100% man, 100% um, Yahweh, 0% man, like I said yesterday. Cloaked, appearing in human form, anthropomorphic Yahushua, yet not from humanity's origins, dust. Because he's the bone from heaven. Which enables him to transfigure our flesh and set us down as the Malkitzedic priesthood at the confirming meal. He can transfigure our flesh. That's the power of the covenant. The transfiguration of our flesh at the resurrection. 
at the wedding supper of the Lamb. To eat his flesh and drink his blood is to partake of the confirmation meal of the bone of heaven, just as they did in Exodus 24, verse 11. This is not some New Testament concept. There is nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said. This was established at the book of the covenant confirming meal. It's covenant reality. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, this is the unsearchable riches of Yahushua that Paul was proclaiming amongst the nations. And it's so powerful. I'll finish up in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. It's just such a, a powerful um, section of Scripture in this identification of the power of the Lamb. So it was written that the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving Ruach spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterwards the spiritual. So we've got to walk through this world in this dust flesh. But afterwards, if we are his and we make it through to the covenant confirming meal and that door isn't shut and we come in, then he's going to transfigure our flesh. No, no rigor mortis, no decay, and it can happen in the twinkling of an eye. It really can. But it is only for his people that have accepted him because he proposed to them that recognize that his blood alone is the blood of the Passover lamb that then qualifies you to come in to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is from the foundation of Exodus 24, bedrock sapphire stone. And that's why that sapphire foundation is found in Revelation. It is unshakable. It is unshakable. It is unshakable. The first man was of the earth, made of dust, but the second man is the master, the bone from heaven. As is the earthly, so also are those that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy one, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly one. Now this I say, my brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of Yahweh, Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery that the only way you're going to get into the kingdom is if you sit down with the bone of heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb that is an established, legal, Malkitzedic covenant-confirming meal. In its full clarity. This is the type of identification of our Savior that we need because in these days there are many people that are propping up straw men. Sp 
especially in the Hebrew roots and messianic movement, and I am not dogging on them. I'm just saying it is a breeding ground for deception. You have a form of godliness, yet you deny its power because you've been influenced by the synagogue of Satan and Judaism and their interpretation of Torah, thinking that they're the ones that have guarded the Torah. The Masoretic text has not a guardianship of the Torah. <laughs> I mean, it really isn't. <laughs> it's a perversion of what is written. You'd have to at least, at least admit that. Yahushua is the guardian of his word. And without him, our interpretation is going to be very flawed. So you and I, as inheritors under the Malkitzedic priesthood, are the ones that are to interpret the Torah by the power of the Holy Spirit, not looking to religious men that have denied the very power. So this is what is so important to me about Passover. And when I was preparing at home for what, what would I teach, what would I teach at Passover? And when I kept receiving emails from various people who say, oh, this brother that walked with us for so long has gone here, this sister that was, and I'm like, oh my goodness, how could this happen? How could this happen? Because of the straw men theology. And I use that because it's a classical term. It re that's really what it is. No substance. Easy to blow over. And then people that are not discerning the master's body can easily go after and go, oh, well, you've got to be right then. Oh, it's so Hebraic of you. Yes, okay, let's go. Off to the wailing wolf and to the Levitical priesthood. Bad idea when there was no Levitical priesthood in Exodus 24:11, There was no Levitical priesthood that participated of the bone of heaven and there will not be a Levitical priesthood that will participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb under that priesthood authority in the future. It's not going to happen. It's Malkitzedek in its inception and it's Malkitzedek in its fulfillment. Amen. Baruch Hashem Yahuwah. Amen.